Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. If you get to 2 Corinthians or anything beyond that, you've got to turn back. And we're in chapter 7. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, verse 25. I'm going to read to us 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. Verse 25, ending at verse 35. Hear the word of God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as those as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as those who are not rejoicing. And those who buy as those as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free of anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Just so far in the reading of God's word. Are things tough in South Africa? I mean, really, are are things tough in South Africa? If you ask a South African that question around a bri, the answer is going to be a resounding, yes, (laughs) things are tough in South Africa. We face, as a country, massive challenges. GDP growth right now is only at like 0.8%, or at least an article that I read this afternoon said. Youth unemployment is at a staggering 54.7%, and when we say youth unemployment, we're talking about you guys. We have a bloated public sector wage bill. We have a hefty 
budget deficit to fill. We're a country that lives with a legacy of systemic inequality. Things are tough in South Africa. Could things be tougher in South Africa? For us Christians, they certainly could. Even just around the corner. I, each, each Friday morning, I get to spend half an hour with an organization called Freedom of Religion South Africa. And I uh, interview them and ask them various different questions. Uh, they're a group of advocates and those involved with law. They're a legal advocacy lobby group. Uh, they interact between the church and the state. They make us as South Africans and the Christian church in particular aware of a number, a raft of bills that are just around the corner that we as the public need to speak to, else we're going to find ourselves under very concerning laws. For example, the Comprehensive Sexual Education Act, which is on the table right now, will change the way that sex ed happens in our schools. Legislative constraints regarding conversion therapy, in other words, what we can and can't say regarding homosexuality, um, even from the church. The Draft National Health Act, that was the act that was used to shut down churches uh, during the COVID pandemic. Well, that contains those same laws and bylaws that can be enacted pretty much at any time. The promotion of equality and prevention of unfair discrimination act, which sounds good, they call it Papuda, which is a ridiculous name, as well as the prevention and combating of health crimes and hate speech bill, which sounds good, contains legislations which would protect me as a pastor saying things that are in the Bible, but wouldn't protect you as members of the church saying the same things to your family, to your friends, and to your co-workers. Things could become, even in our country, just around the corner, a lot tougher for Bible-believing Christians in South Africa. Now, 1 Corinthians was written just over 20 years after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just over 20 years after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ into heaven, just over 20 years after the Holy Spirit was outpoured at Pentecost and the church was established. And at this moment in the church's history, things are very tough for the Corinthian church. Jesus predicted that it would be. He said in John chapter 15, verse 20, remember the word that, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples that you will be, well, you will receive first power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. The word there for witness is martaos. It's where we get the English word martyr from. Because so many Christians in the early church were martyred for their faith. That word took on peculiar meaning for us. In 41 AD to 44 AD, Agrippa, 
Herod, the great's grandson, he rules in Palestine and he kills James, the brother of John. That's in Acts chapter 12, verse two. Obviously, this, this comes after the killing of Stephen in Acts chapter seven. He imprisons Peter in Acts chapter 12, verse three. In 49 AD, Claudius expels the Jews from, Jeru from Rome sorry, because of conflicts about Jesus. We read about that in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. And then in 54 AD to 65 AD, a mad hatter of a king emperor ascends to the throne. His name is Nero. The early church experienced suffering for the sake of Jesus in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, in Galatia, Galatians chapter 3, verse 4, in Philippi, Philippians chapter 1, verse 34, in Thessalonica, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, and in Asia Minor, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, as did the recipients of the letter written to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Paul himself, the apostle, describes incredible afflictions that he came under in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 29. And all the other apostles experienced affliction and distress and trials and tribulations. You can read about those from Acts chapter five all the way through to verse eight, the beginnings of those. In fact, Paul himself said that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy chapter three, verse 12. Now that's not a popular thing to say in churches nowadays. But it's true, that's what Paul said. Into this context of immense strain and persecution upon the church around 55 AD, 1 Corinthians is written. And things are tough for Corinth, in Corinth for believers, that's a given. The question that we ask ourselves is how will those Corinthians live? How do God's people respond to difficult circumstances, in dangerous times, through vexing trials? Two-point sermon. First point, they live with eternity in mind. Second point, they devote themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. First point, they live with eternity in mind. Second point, they devote themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. Let me show you that first point from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 through to verse 31. We'll spend a little bit longer in this point and then follow through to the second point and then apply. Verse 25 says, now concerning the betrothed, I hear that word too often nowadays, I have no command from the Lord, but I, I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Starts off by saying concerning. And, and it really causes us to cast our minds back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 in your Bibles. If you just look back, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Paul is writing 
1 Corinthians, answering a whole lot of questions that the Corinthians had put to him. Questions about immorality, about marriage and celibacy, about the conduct of women in worship, about handling meat offered to idols, and about the communion service. He says, now concerning the betrothed, this is a, an answer to a question that they asked about the betrothed. What does that mean? Well, the, the word is parthenon, and it really just means virgins. It means young women who are virgins. It could mean, uh, it gets interpreted in three possible ways by commentators. The first way is a large group of the early church fathers understood this passage to be talking about virgin women not yet married. A teeny tiny, almost not even worth talking about, of the early church fathers understood this term to refer to men and women who were married but who had chosen uh, not to live together in sexual relations with one another. The third view, which is adopted by many modern commentators, and the way that the ESV translates it is that this term refers to a young, engaged woman. Paul says of this group, I have no command from the Lord. Paul's not saying that this section is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's just saying that Jesus hadn't explicitly taught on this subject. He says, I give my judgment with apostolic authority, Paul is ruling or suggesting or, or giving an explanation. These words are as inspired and as binding as the red letter words spoken by Jesus elsewhere in Scripture. Verse 26 through to verse 28. I think that in view of the present distress, that's the persecution by the way, it is good for a person to remain as he is. That reminds us of what we've been speaking about in the rest of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you, bound from a, are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. The present distress. In the original language, in Greek, it's in something called the perfect tense. It's something which started in the past, but it's, it's ongoing even in the present. This time of tribulation has begun. It may be that Paul anticipates a even greater trial in the imminent future, um, after the great fire of Rome in AD 64, Nero unleashed terrible persecution on the church. But, but right now he's talking about the present distress. And he's, his answer to this present distress is that you must remain. And it causes us to remember 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 to 24 that we dealt with last week. Uh, Paul applies this single truth both to unmarried men as well as to unmarried women, and the truth was that under persecution, it's better to remain unmarried. It'll be easier to cope with whatever the stress was because the single person will not have to be concerned for their spouse and for possibly their children. But he goes on to say, are you bound? 
Are, are you free? Do not seek. Do not seek. Uh, this is in the perfect tense. It's completed in the past, continuing to the present. Don't change your state. It's an imperative. It's a command. Stop it. In other words, some in the Corinthian church were thinking about either leaving their marriages or, or, or thinking about um, uh, 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 they, were, they were bound to a wife, they were thinking about being free, or they were free from a wife, and they were thinking about getting hitched, and they had asked the question to Paul in writing, and, and Paul's answer to them is stop it. Stop what you are presently thinking of doing and think for a while. Marriage is a lifelong bond that can only be broken by death. As we spoke about two weeks ago, adultery or divorce by an unbelieving spouse. Other problems, no matter how severe, are never grounds for divorce. Stop what you are thinking, Paul says. The direct application here is consider not getting married in the midst of persecution. But to principalize this text, in times of crisis, it might be best not to marry in the moment. Now, crisis, in terms of a principalization of this text, could be extended to you being in deep financial debt. It could be extended to times of war. Uh, if uh, diagnosed with a terminal or an incurable disease or illness. These are times of crisis that you should stop and think of what you are doing. However, Paul is not putting a shackle on your leg. He is not putting a yoke around your neck. He says in the event that you do marry, you have not sinned. Don't make a law out of Paul's wise advice. Paul isn't condemning marriage. He just feels that it is better to stay single during times of deep crisis. Marriage is always, friends, a legitimate option. We see that in Genesis chapters one and two and then the whole rest of the Bible. But we need to realize it's not the only option. Marriage isn't easy under the best of circumstances. Ask Liesl <laughs> over a cup of tea and coffee after the service. But in times of distress, marriage will be even harder. The church doesn't always make things easy for, sing for singles. Sorry about that. We rightly promote the virtues of marriage as if marriage is the only virtuous state that God's people can aspire to. But we do need to recognize that singleness is also a gift from God. Now here's the key that turns the lock of understanding on this passage. If you are married, you can think about that right now. If you are married, seek to glorify God in and through your marriage. And if you are single, seek to glorify God in and through your singleness. Either way, you are to live with eternity in mind. That's what verse 29 to 31 is all about. Let me read it to you. You can follow in your own Bibles. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The appointed time 
has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as those as though they had no good, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Live with eternity in mind. The appointed time has grown very short. Friends, time is short. We mustn't count days, we must make days count. Why? Because eternity is at hand, forever is around the corner. How? How are we to live in light of eternity? There are five practical ways that Paul gives us in this text. Firstly, let those who have wives live as though they had none. This is not calling husbands <laughs> to ignore their wives. <laughs> saying, um, uh, saying, uh, saying like this, we need to keep in perspective. This is more like the words of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The intention here isn't that we hate our wife, that, that wouldn't be what Jesus is saying. He's speaking in hyperbola. What he's saying is in comparison to our love for him, in comparison to for our love for him, if we desire to be his disciples, all other things in this world we must hold on to loosely. Second way, practically to live, is mourn as though you are not mourning. Friends, be careful how you grieve. Now we hear the words of Jesus, uh, uh, the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, saying, do not grieve as others or as Gentiles uh, do who have no hope. More to the point, don't let grief disable you from useful service in this life. Again, in the words of Jesus, he, he says in Luke chapter 9, verse 60, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Was Jesus saying don't have funerals? No, that's not what he was saying. There's an appropriate time for grief. We see Jesus crying at his friend's funeral, um, at the tomb of Lazarus. But friends, A, we don't grieve like the world, and B, we don't let grief scupple us so we can't serve Jesus Christ because we hold the world and everything in it loosely, and we keep our eye on eternity. Number three, three practical ways to live in light of this truth. Difficult circumstances do call for tough decisions, but rejoice as though you are not rejoicing. Friends, take care in what you find pleasure in. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 to 39, Jesus actually again, summarizes many of the aspects that we find right here. He says, for as in the days of Noah, 
so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and they were giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the end game. Eternity is at hand. And so live with eternity at mind, at, at, uh, in mind. Number four. And those who buy as though they had no good, uh, goods. Um, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Don't chase the dollar so hard that you lose your focus on the person of Jesus Christ. In the words of Christ again, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Number five, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. That's kind of like the, the last and the, the summary uh, that we are to hold on loosely to the things of this world. Why? Because it's passing away. Uh, a missionary who died, persecuted, a martyr for the faith, Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Don't get so wrapped up in the affairs of this world, your studies, your first job, your marriage, your children, uh, whatever else it might be, your first car, your first boat, your first holiday home, or whatever other thing you are chasing as hard as you possibly can. Don't get so wrapped up in the affairs of this world that your fellowship with Christ and obedience to God is hindered. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. There's nothing wrong with marriage. There's nothing wrong with weeping. There's nothing wrong with laughing. There's nothing wrong with buying. These are all legitimate aspects of life but nothing must hinder our service to Jesus. Life is too short and eternity too long and souls too precious and the gospel too wonderful for us to take it easy in this life. In whatever station you find yourself right now, live with eternity in mind. Second point. Devote yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord. We can read about that from verse 32 to verse 35. Let's start in verse 32. Read in your own Bibles. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the... I want you to be free of, from anxieties, but he only has anxiety in the passage. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. 
anxieties. The advantage of singleness in times of distress is that it can lessen one's worry or concern about relational entanglement. I don't know if you sang this song in Sunday school when you were a kid. I certainly did. I've decided to follow Jesus. There were actions. I can't, I'm, I'm old. I can't remember the actions. But I, I do remember I was walking. I have, to, maybe that was Father Abraham. But, but I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Praise the Lord. Can you remember that? Am I getting some nods? A couple of Baptists. I'm sure the Methodists and the Presbyterians did it as well. Um, the, the second verse. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. The lyrics are based on the last words of Noxon, a Garo man, a tribe from Meghalala, I hope that's right, which was in Assam. And he converted, it's a good news story, he converted to Christianity in the middle of the 19th century through the work of an American Baptist missionary. Praise the Lord for American Baptist missionaries. He's said to have recited these verses as the tribe that he was from first killed his wife. And then killed his children, and finally killed him. In fact, each verse he said as a response to the question, will you recant, will you turn away from this Christian faith just before they were executed by arrows? As a children's song, we sang the words, but maybe as adults we can understand the thoughts of first your wife being offered her life for you to apostate, to turn away from your faith and to say, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And then after she's already dead for your first child and then your second child, though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus, no turning back. The world behind me the cross before me, no turning back before your life is taken too. You see, friends, Paul is speaking here of pleasing the Lord in the midst of severe persecution or pleasing a wife or a husband in the midst of the same persecution and the weightiness of having to be devoted to the Lord even in the midst of that kind of trial. The married man obviously wants to do both because both are legitimate, God-given pursuits. The married man, though, has obligations, and taken too far, this can be devastating to the spiritual life of a man. But how did the Corinthians, or how were the Corinthians called upon by Paul to live in these uncertain circumstances in the midst of all the difficulties that they were facing, how did Paul call on them to live? He says this in verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. 
Firstly, this isn't a law that you can't get married if things get tough. No, if you need to get married, get married, Paul says. But I have your interests at heart, and I tell you, if you get married and things are tough, it will be difficult for you. Because, friends, whether times are easy, like now, I mean, we say things are tough, but in actual fact, in comparison to the Corinthian situation, in comparison to what that Indian martyr experienced, things are relatively easy for us, certainly as the church. But even now, we are called upon to be devoted wholeheartedly to the Lord. Each and every one of us living out our Christian lives right now in wholehearted devotion. And if things get really bad, even really bad in South Africa, and it's possible that it could, world history certainly points to the church of Christ often coming under persecution. The call on your life is no different. Be devoted to the Lord in whatever station God has given you. What does wholehearted devotion look like in your life tonight, unbeliever? It starts by you recognizing your terrible estate before God, your terrible state, the state of your soul, a sinner in desperate need of a savior. Wholehearted devotion to the Lord for you unbelievers starts with you recognizing that God is holy and separated from sin. Undivided and wholehearted devotion for you unbeliever begins with you recognizing that you can't save yourself. You have no hope in hell. Undivided and wholehearted devotion for you unbeliever begins with you recognizing that Jesus died for your sin, that he rose from the grave in victory over the dead, and that by placing your faith and your trust in him, you might be saved. Tonight, undevoted and wholehearted devotion, undevoted, wholehearted devotion begins with you repenting, turning from your sins and casting yourself upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Profess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved to eternal life. Friends, it is useless holding on to something which is passing away and giving up something which is eternal. Life is eternal. Jesus is eternal. So flee to him. Do not delay. Fly to the cross of Jesus Christ and you will be saved this day. Believers, what does wholehearted devotion look like in this world and even right now for you? Well, all of the things that Paul speaks about, having wives and mourning and rejoicing and buying and dealing with the world, all of these things we actually experience even in the world today. The answer is well, we need to hold loosely to the things of this world 
And we need to hold tightly to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we live in it. We are citizens of another world. We are passing through this place. We are we're living in tents. Even our bodies are described as tents in Scripture. We have something far more glorious that we are heading to. And so live in wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ in your life today. Whether you are a student, whether you are a parent, whether you are a child in school, whether you have started your first job in whatever station of life God has placed you, live to Jesus Christ's praise and glory while things are easy, that you might praise the Lord, live to his praise and glory and in wholehearted devotion, even if things get tough. Through the Holy Spirit of God, who works powerfully in our hearts, these things can be done. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I do ask that you would revive our hearts. Revive our hearts. Turn hearts which are too often hard into soft flesh. That's the new covenant, Lord God, and we experienced it at salvation. Once again, might we not be lukewarm Christians like the Laodiceans, but might we be fiery hot, spurred on in all things by the Spirit of God who is within us. Lord, stir up in our hearts, holy affection toward Jesus Christ, that we might live out our lives to your praise and glory. Each one of us that are here this evening, start with us, Lord God. Please, we want to see revival in our city. We want to see students coming to you in mass. We want to see men and women and children professing Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. But, but start with us, Lord God. Revive our hearts that we might be devoted to you. Devoted to the things of God. That our lives might be a witness. That our lives might be a treasure to you, a holy and acceptable offering in your sight. These things we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, who's our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.